Hello and welcome back to Ceremonial Vulgaris, a podcast where we unfuck classics so you don't have to. I'm John, and this week's episode is titled, Who the Hell is Vesperian? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the wretched kingdom that is my mind, <laughs> also known as Sermoval Garris. I'm John, someone who took objectively way too long to write this episode, and I'm here today to ask you an important question. What the fuck does it mean to be canon? And look, I am no stranger to fanfiction or internet discourse about popular media franchises. I spent a lot of my childhood on Archive of Our Own and even tried my hand at writing cursed anime fanfiction that will never again see the light of day, even worse it was Italia. So I understand the general concept of canon, at least how it's applied to fandom culture. But what does it mean, where does it come from, and most importantly, is it problematic to think about canon when it comes to something like Greek mythology? This episode will be using the story of Mesperian, who we covered last time, as an example to guide us through these questions. Those of you who aren't yet familiar with her are welcome to go and listen to Part A first, just to acquaint yourself with the absolute fashion icon that is this goddess, but I'll make sure that this episode isn't too hard to follow conceptually if you're not up to date on all the hot goss yet. All that's really important for this episode is that you know Mesperian isn't an ancient goddess. She's a retcon into the Greek pantheon someone wrote online in the 21st century. But before we get into that, I just want to apologize that this part apparently took, um, should be like a full month, maybe even a little more by the time it comes out, and, um, I don't really have an excuse. Uh, producing a podcast as one person is really hard. Especially for something that requires as much research and scholarly reading as an episode of Sermo, and sometimes you just don't have the emotional spoons to get something done, no matter how long you sit there and try to do it. Um, it's rough, you know, uh, mental health can be so random and unforgiving sometimes, and I'm honestly someone who struggles a lot with anxiety, so perfectionism and, like, performance-related paralysis has definitely been a recurring theme for me on this podcast and also just in my life, and it's something that I want to be really transparent about as, you know, a hashtag creator and also just for, just for accountability reasons, really. So I just want to thank you so much for your continued patience and patronage, and also just to remind you guys that, you know, it's okay to struggle with stuff or not know things, or I guess in my case, sit there and stare at a screen for a month. A lot of what we produce on Sermo involves researching areas of classics we aren't familiar with and getting things wrong along the way, and we're really just as scared as you are, if not more. But I think that's also more of a reason to keep doing it, you know, to keep being transparent about our struggles and to keep making classics as accessible as possible because Sermo is all about depedestalizing this field and creating an open space to learn together. With that said, I luckily won't be alone for much longer. During the time it took for this part to come out, um, I've actually wrapped up producing the next part, um, where I talked to some very cool people about some very cool things, as well as begun the interview process for next year's Servo Team applicants, and wow, I'm so excited for you to hear about both. Anyways, remember how I promised I'd give an extra classics Twitter segment last time because I postponed the normal one to talk about Princeton? 
Well, uh, let's do that now and check out what's going on in Classics Twitter, a little segment we do at the beginning of every episode to catch you up on current events in the most incurrent discipline there is. And this week we are also not going to talk about the Classics Twitter segment I'd originally planned. Um, that one was about Kim Kardashian, and don't get me wrong, artifact smuggling is a very heinous issue, and the fact that the trafficking of unprovenanced artifacts is still so pervasive in the high-profile art world is a huge problem, but once again, I think I'm gonna spontaneously put that one on hold so I can just, you know, quickly address some of the more recent bullshit that has happened on the vaguely classics-flavored part of the internet that I simply think is just more pressing to put out a statement for, because... You know, especially because Pride Month just ended, and I therefore have even less patience than usual for homophobia. So there's this guy. I don't know anything about him as a person, but he's apparently this journalist on Twitter. I, I can't name him, but he's a public figure who writes as a fellow for an organization which describes itself as, quote, DC's premier think tank dedicated to applying the... <laughs> the Judeo-Christian moral tradition to critical issues of public policy. Unquote. And look, we love to be a little political here on Serbo Vulgaris because as a podcast and as a student union, we believe wholeheartedly in unfucking the classical tradition. But I just want to clarify that I'm not just here to bully a single individual on Twitter. I'm here because this single unnamed individual is a public figure with a wide following and a position of power being employed at a seemingly well-established conservative think tank. And I'm here because this singular individual representing whatever entity or politics he belongs to is spreading outright lies about classical antiquity with the intent of discrediting queerness both modern and historical, and that is what we like to call misinformative and dangerous, if not outright hateful. So I'm not going to mince my words at all. Numerous well-respected people in the classical discipline have already written some great rebuttals against this guy's information, so I feel pretty confident calling him out on his bullshit. Some time ago, the New Yorker posted a link on their Twitter account to an article about the Sacred Band of Thieves, an elite force of the Theban army reputed for comprising of 150 male couples. They were known to have been instrumental in the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BCE between the Boeotians and the aforementioned Thebans. And this made our journalist man upset, I guess. Um, in a quote tweet he writes, quote, On top of being a stupid lie, the retconning of ancient male friendship as homosexuality has damaging implications today, unquote. And oh my god, I have so much to say. Um, first of all, of all the possibly actually ambiguous male-male relationships in antiquity he could have chosen to get mad about, he chose possibly the gayest one. The Sacred Band of Thebes is widely accepted to have actually and unambiguously comprised of lovers, and this is more than evident in the explicit and formalized language of homoeroticism with which Greek writers address this band. I'll pull up Plutarch, from whom we have the bulk of our textual knowledge about the sacred band. In his Life of Pelopidas, biographizing the famous Theban general, he explicitly refers to the men in the band multiple times as existing within an Erastes or Romanos relationship. I will now read two examples of this out loud to you, and I will do it in the Greek, just to assure you that this is not a liberty of the English translator. Both of these are in section 18. Please excuse my very English-Greek pronunciation. 
The first sentence reads, Enioide fascinex eraston kairomenon genestai to sustematuto. But some say that's enioi fascin that this band was comprised of lovers and beloved. Plutarch then spends the entirety of this section waxing poetic about the strategic benefits of this arrangement, and at the very end he provides a likely apocryphal, but still I think very, very revealing about the attitude kind of story about Philip seeing the band defeated at the Battle of Chironea. Quote, After the battle, Philip was surveying the dead and stopped at the place where the 300 were lying, all where they had faced the long spheres of his phalanx with their armor and mingled one with another. He was amazed. Putomenon hoston eraston kaiton eromenon hutos e locos that learning that this was the band of lovers and to be loved, burst into tears and said, Perish miserably they who think that these men did or suffered aught disgraceful. End quote. Both of these are from the Loeb edition, and I welcome you to check them yourself. Now, what is this Erastes Eromenos relationship I keep talking about? For the uninitiated, these two terms refer to the individuals who form a pederastic relationship, which is essentially a highly formalized type of homoerotic relationship in Greek society, consisting in simple terms of an older active lover and a younger passive beloved. This is the context with which to understand the relationships of the sacred band, at least as presented by Plutarch. Pairs of explicitly male lovers occurring within the formalized and well-attested system of pederasty. You may ask how we can be sure when Plutarch isn't a contemporary of the events he is describing, and that is very fair. However, in terms of complete written evidence of the band altogether, he's sort of our best source. The depiction of the sacred band as Erastai and Eromanoi is also corroborated by many other authors, such as Athenaeus. This is all in addition to some very interesting archaeological evidence, of which the New Yorker article actually explores. There is a huge burial near the site of the monumental Lion of Chironea statue, a landmark attested as far back as Pausanias, and which is generally accepted to correspond to the burial site of the sacred band. The site consists of 254 male skeletons, assumed to be the Thebans, near Macedonian cremation burials. Some, as the article points out, are even articulated as if they are holding hands. But okay, so we've established that while nothing in antiquity is surefire, there's some very, very solid evidence that the pairs which constituted the sacred band of Thebes were indeed, um, more than friends, shall we say. So let's move on to the second part of our journalist's erroneous proclamation and examine what exactly about his, in about his misinformation is so particularly damaging. For one, it's a strange claim that, and I quote, the normalization of homosexuality has killed intimate male friendships, end quote, which, huh? I'm sorry, I wasn't aware that you could either have friends or fuck, and as your resident normalized homosexual, this is just a really bizarre claim to me that I don't really think holds under any logical scrutiny unless one assumes that every man must be so blisteringly homophobic that he would stop talking to other men in fear of social ostracism, something that would not happen anyway were homosexuality normalized in the first place. The flimsy and clearly political nature of this proclamation is perhaps no better outlined in his further claim that I quote, the powers that be made 
Strong male bonding impossible because it's too politically dangerous. Small bands of men bound together in do-or-die friendship can destroy a regime, end quote. I don't even want to comment on this one. It feels pretty self-evident what's going on here. Um, I just think it's patently ridiculous that this man is stoking homophobic rhetoric under the bizarre and historically unsupported conspiracy theory that the liberal elite don't want you to become heterosexual power rangers with your homies because... Because nothing, I guess, is less entrenched, less hegemonic, or more rare in history than men grouping together for politics, I guess. I guess you realize pretty quickly that even his followers thought this logic was bizarre, because then he starts backpedaling onto a third claim, which is really where I want to focus our present discussion, because really I think it's both the most controversial and the point with the most discursive potential. In fact, it actually backs quite cleanly onto an actual ongoing debate that actual classicists are having in this field, and that is when he says, quote, Erastus Aromanos relationships in ancient Greece are not at all the same thing as what we are today told is, quote, gay identity, end quote. And let's just talk about this. Let's, let's fucking talk about this, can we? I'm gonna go off the record so I can make my opinion very clear here, and that's that this is a bad faith argument, especially coming from him. And I think it holds particular potential to be dangerous precisely because it starts from a very true premise. Modern labels such as gay and straight were not operative categories in antiquity, that much is absolutely true, and there's been a lot of very productive conversations about the ways in which social anachronisms may impede people from correctly understanding the very culturally foreign nuances of sex and love in ancient Greece or Rome. There's a genuine pitfall when it comes to assuming that sexuality labels are culturally universal, and there's a certainly, I think, an ethical prerogative for us as students of history to not make assumptions based on our own experiences. But the thing about checking your modern anachronisms at the door is that you're not allowed to pick and choose what is or isn't anachronistic. Because no... There is technically no gayness in antiquity because people who engaged in relationships and self-expressions we today categorize as gay would not identify themselves as such. But the inverse absolutely applies as well to being straight, believe it or not, something that I don't think we're nearly as comfortable admitting as we should be. This kind of double standard becomes particularly egregious and I think damaging to our understanding of history overall when it comes in statements like those of our journalist, which attempt in vain to draw some sort of dichotomy that uplifts then and discredits now, which immediately falls apart under closer scrutiny. The idea of even a quote-unquote modern gay identity, to use his words, is a vague and culturally variable phenomenon that is not necessarily smoothly continuous or identifiable in itself. Would, for example, the gay subculture of 1940s Berlin, the Stonewall riots, and contemporary queer discourse necessarily identify with each other? Do the queer traditions of non-Western cultures count as part of that identity, especially when they have often been vocal about how they have been excluded from that conversation? Do the realities of white gays and black and brown gays in America, for example, form a continuous image of gay resilience, or separate traditions fragmented by intersecting experiences of racial discrimination? And the damage of our journalist's rhetoric is really the very targeted and selective way in which he admits that there is nuance on some fronts, but then paints others with convenient generalizations in order to create a dichotomy that doesn't really exist anywhere in the first place. It's intellectually lazy, and I just don't think it's good faith. 
By creating this oversimplified image of the modern versus pagan gay, he is also able to smoothen away the queer contours of the past by using heteronormative cultural assumptions of his readers to his advantage, essentially applying that pagan homosexuality quote-unquote is more heterosexual than the modern counterpart. It's a strange and age-old argument I've seen way too many times and in way too many places that instances of homosexuality which occur in socially acceptable contexts such as those of a pederastic relationship are somehow actually heterosexual? Like, congratulations, I guess it's now straight to be gay. Um, this is intellectually half-hearted for a lot of reasons, and I think really highlights the way in which many people, our journalist included, perceive gayness as merely a malleable and fundamentally meaningless label for anything that is seen as foreign, unmasculine, and therefore undesirable. It's not like it's even the homosexuality that bothers them, but rather a rhetorically shifted discomfort with anything that is simply non-normative and therefore grotesque. I take a lot of issue with the way in which modern anachronisms, quote-unquote, are discussed at all, and while the premise is correct, I think it's worth more closely examining the ways in which this rhetoric uses neutrality as a means of perpetuating covert biases in itself that are damaging and self-defeating. The idea of the quote-unquote modern label is treated as something I like to call the burden of modernity. There's an insidious implication coming from the language of imposing anachronism in which the real artificiality of present social constructs is exaggerated or used as a means of rhetorically placing the minority, in this case gay people, in a place of distinct unnaturalness. Framing antiquity as by inverse a pristine and primitive locus for the contemporary imagination that must not be infringed upon by modern and thus illegitimate conventions. Concepts such as gayness are thus treated as a burden which modern individuals suffer and whose principal property in a cultural exchange is negative. Gayness becomes a compromise we have made and a symbol of mortal, artificial transgression against the primeval, the beautiful, and, well, the normal. It additionally feeds into this bizarre idea that concepts like being gay essentially develop through some kind of parthogenesis, like they just spontaneously materialize one day with no historical precursors or legacy or heritage that they are allowed to claim. The very presence of an articulated queer identity is treated as ahistorical and as an unnatural disruption, one which transgresses upon the safe fabric of ambiguity with which history is often swaddled and which ultimately only betrays modern heteronormative biases rather than anything essential to the civilizations we're talking about. And I don't like that at all. You know, ask yourself why it's seemingly only queer people who are denied access to a self-identity or heritage or more normative categories like being straight, not similarly bound by time and geography if they too are held up to the same logic. That's all I really wanted to say in terms of dispelling the misinformation contained in that post, so I really want to take this moment now to seriously reaffirm Thermal Vulgaris' staunch commitment to the LGBTQ plus community now and forever. I know many of you listening to this right now are probably queer yourselves, as am I and many of the talented people who've worked on this podcast, and I want to reiterate with utmost passion and certainty that we here at Thermo and at Class you see you, we affirm you, you are safe here, and we are so proud to be dispelling bigotry year-round and advocating for a more inclusive and accessible classics with her work. Many of us here at Class U have been 
that lost queer kid ourselves at some point or another, and classics is definitely a field that has always attracted queer reception and representation, and I really hope more than anything else that anyone, anyone who listens to this podcast can find a supportive home here regardless of their identity. Anyways, with that said, let's get on to the shmeat of this week's episode. Okay, let's address the obvious Mesperian in the room. We know that she, you know, this Greek goddess, was made up by random people on the internet in the 21st century. But does the fact that she's not a quote-unquote real Greek goddess really matter? Does her late origin make her myth fake? Can Mesperian ever be a real Greek god? To introduce us to the big boss that is this question, let me frame this using a Reddit post I found on the subject because that's obviously always a good way to start. So people are pretty mad because she's not part of the original myth, right? So one day, a Reddit user started this big thread about this where they make the very bold and contentious claim that something, quote, deriving from myth does not equal myth, end quote. Comparing stuff like Mesperian to, quote, an annoying 14-year-old neighbor, end quote, who stole your story and started spreading around their own headcanons. One of their comments with another user additionally states that, quote, the Book of Mormon doesn't attempt to add anything, instead stating that it is the truth and to ignore the others. Same with the Quran, same with the Bible. By your logic, we could say books such as Guns of the South or The High Crusade are just expansions of history. We need to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. End quote. And wow, so I just wanted to bring this up specifically because of that last bit there, where this Reddit user kind of brings in religious texts and proclamation of absolute truth as being an essential part of religion, implying um, a similar process of sussing out the truth in regards to Greek mythology. And so I want to open up this discussion by posing really the ultimate question I think he's getting at. Is Mesperian canon? But before we even start, I just want to preface this with something really important. Um, you might think that I'm just gonna take Mesperian's side and go at it from like a Oh, myth is just fanfiction, so she totally fits in angle that we've joked countless times about on this podcast, but I don't really want this to be that kind of episode. So even if I, you know, full disclosure, don't really believe you can or should uh, even apply the concept of canon to Greek mythology, it's still important to remember that Greek mythology is a religious phenomenon, not just a fun story, and that for that reason, uh, the topic is honestly, I think, just more sensitive than we've maybe treated it in the past. So I'm going to try to approach the idea of canonicity with a little more nuance, and especially emphasize the essential differences between purely fictional canon, religious canon, and practical belief. I just think that's an important thing to do, um, and something I've unfortunately personally neglected in the past, I think especially in light of some of the really awesome conversations people have been having recently about, you know, Marvel trying to copyright Norse mythology or whatever, on the nature of mythology and fiction, and the tendency for people to compare gods to superheroes. Um, I'm going to be using a lot of sources for this because both religious history and the meta-history of literature are definitely outside of my academic comfort zone, but one very accessible piece of writing that really brings it all together and which I definitely want to highlight as a major inspiration is Dr. Brett DeVros' Practical Polytheism, a fantastic blogspot series you can read by searching up his personal website. You know, I might even quote it here. Who knows? 
I also really want to thank my friends Sam and Mateo for very, very patiently explaining to me how the Bible works and providing me with resources because, wow, um, the division of denominational canons is really confusing and I didn't want to misrepresent anything. So really, you know, if you want to blame anyone for why this episode took so long to come out, you can blame God. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Anyways. Before we can examine if there's a canon for Greek mythology from Asperian to belong to, um, let's start by understanding the history of the term canon itself. So the English word canon comes from the ancient Greek word um, kanon, I think is how, it's how it's pronounced, and in its most literal form, this is a term for what we would now call a measuring stick, or um, uh, literally a wooden rod, actually, kind of like a physical standard for literally measuring things. Um, from this, we end up with a more figurative definitions of the term in Greek, which all still revolve around the idea of the canon, this literal yardstick, being a set standard or template we use either to examine its relation to other things, such as saying that something is however many sticks long, or as a neutral measurement to compare two or more things with each other. Um, the term became used to mean a musical monochord, a grammatical rule, and perhaps most famously outside of religious contexts, an art model. Um, one should be reminded of the famous Polycleiton Canon, a written work in which the classical sculptor Polycleitos attempts to set a standard for making statues by introducing a set of supposedly perfect mathematical proportions to follow. It is from these uses that the origins of canon as a term for a more abstract set of norms or rules becomes visible. In its loosest sense, the canon as a word and concept becomes the guideline for what is most standard, most normative, and therefore most correct. It's, um, the most definitive thing of a thing, basically. Many of you are probably already familiar with this definition of the canon from Christian and Jewish doctrine, specifically the concept of the biblical canon. Um, this conception of canon is what I believe our Reddit user is getting at when he says that works like the Bible and the Book of Mormon profess that they are the truth, and when he suggests that Greek mythology must do the same. So, for those of you who aren't familiar like me, um, the biblical canon is the set of texts which Christians and Jews, or a particular denomination, hold to be the only true and authoritative scripture. Uh, most Christians today, for example, believe in the canonicity of the four main Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament, though ge now generally agreed upon across denominations, of course developed as canon slowly over time and was itself subject to fierce debates about what works should or shouldn't be considered canonical. The second epistle of Peter, for example, has historically um, been contended in terms of its canonicity most directly by the early Christian writer Eusebius, but is today widely accepted to be part of the canonical, the definitive, the correct, for them, body of works we now call the New Testament. For an Old Testament example, you might look at something like the first book of Maccabees, which is currently considered canonical in the Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Oriental traditions, but not by Protestants. 
Um, works that are considered canonical in scripture may be contrasted, of course, by works called apocrypha. Um, apocrypha, biblically speaking, refers most broadly to the works outside of an accepted canon and first referred to the works of the um, Septuagint, that is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that were determined not to be part of the Hebrew Bible and thus excluded from the canon. Works called apocryphal may be considered totally fake altogether or called deuterocanonical that is not accepted in this canon, but canonical to others. And I draw up this long, long explanation of the biblical canon first, because I think at least beginning to understand the logic behind Christians having and needing a canon, you know, the set body of authoritative works, might help us understand how and whether or not a concept like this is applicable to Greek mythology. And that's where I personally say no. You see, the thing is, not all religions work the same way, and I think we often take things that are actually quite rare outside of Abrahamic faiths as endemic to, or even defining, of all religions because, well, um, they're just so dominant now. Of course, some non-Abrahamic religions do have things similar to biblical canons. The Pali canon, for example, refers to the standard and defining texts maintained by the Amtheravada Buddhist tradition. But what puts both of these canons together is precisely a tradition present within that religion of a more or less central authority being recognized as well as the really obligate exclusion of contradicting beliefs and traditions in favor of an established and true narrative. The Pali canon, for example, is traditionally claimed to constitute the direct teachings of the Gautama Buddha as orally recorded and subsequently enforced by the so-called First Buddhist Council, a gathering of 500 senior monks some months after the Buddha's death in order to agree on the ensuing canon. Many more such councils would be held in subsequent centuries in which leading authorities on the recording and interpretation of Buddhist scripture would convene and resulted in um, quite a few schisms over differences in the preservation or reform of these authoritative words. Christianity, as we know, also generally operates within such a rigid structure of religious hierarchy and authority, with significant doctrinal contradictions resulting in the fracture of traditions or the removal of authority due to a specific belief in the attainment of a one true narrative. And Greek polytheistic religion specifically um, never really had enough of a central authority to work like that. Um, you can even argue that it's really just hard for a polytheistic religion like this, especially, to even establish a canon, because there's no, like, either, like, big god or, like, big prophet or, um, just big guy whose word is treated as most authoritative or sacred over other big guys, you know? Zeus saying something doesn't cancel out Poseidon saying something, for example. They both just want different things, and you gotta reconcile that. So, okay. There is no Greek canon. There is no universal truth. That's just kind of not a thing. And, you know, I think the idea of just not having a set doctrine like that is kind of scary for us. I'm sure at least some of you are probably frowning at me right now and asking, how can we have so many texts that reference the same myths and so many sanctuaries with inscriptions to the same gods if there isn't some kind of generally agreed-upon Panhellenic canon to draw from? The answer to that is complicated. So I'm going to approach proving my point from two separate directions. 
The first direction is that Greek religion is orthopraxic, not orthodoxic. I'm pretty sure I've name-dropped these two terms somewhere on the podcast, but um, just in case your long-term memory is as bad as mine, um, let me explain them again. Orthodoxy is what you would apply to a religion like Christianity, where the religion really is based on shared morals, beliefs, or adherence to some kind of doctrine. And wait, you might say, isn't that all religion? Um, no. N no, actually. Uh, belief and adherence to a moral doctrine, this idea of faith that has become so synonymous with the religion that the two are often used interchangeably is only really one of the things upon which a religion can be based. Um, religions that center faith, you know, personally believing certain things, and generally just the inner feelings of the person practicing the religion are orthodoxic, meaning literally right opinion in ancient Greek. But like I've said before, um, Greek polytheism isn't orthodoxic, it's orthopraxic. And the best way to understand orthopraxic religion, even if it's, you know, admittedly a little oversimplified, is to imagine that the religion doesn't center the worshipper's inner feelings, but rather the worshipper's outer world. The physical effects of ritual on the environment around them, as people for the most part raised in a world whose biggest religions are very orthodoxic, as well as people born into a generally quite secularized and medicalizing modern worldview, I think we can tend to be very, um, psychological or anthropological when it comes to understanding the effects of religious practice. You know, we think about religion doing things like giving people hope, enforcing the status quo, creating shared identity, cultivating a f culture of fear, etc, etc, and those are true. You know, those are all in different ways true. But what immediately lies at the heart of orthopraxy for your actual worshipper on the ground, you know, assuming of course that people generally believe in their own gods and you should believe them when they tell you they do, is, um, results. Orthopraxic religions tend to be understood as generally revolving around ritual and practicality. You don't pray to a god because you personally like what they're selling beliefs-wise, but rather just because, um, that god exists and is capable of doing things to you, good or bad. There is fundamentally an exchange going on here, it's pragmatic. It's about making sure that the crops grow and, you know, your friend stops being sick and your wife travels home safely from overseas, you know, things that happen to be controllable by a world full of gods, big and small, who can be pleased to do your favor if it so inclines them. You know, to use a Roman example, this kind of attitude might be best exemplified in the Latin saying, Do ut des, I give so that you might give. Um, just because you dislike Poseidon personally doesn't mean he can't wreck your shit. Um, the Greeks were famously not the biggest fans of Ares at all, for example, but he was a god nonetheless who really needed to be pleased. And so knowledge in such an orthopraxic religion comes down to being based on what Brett DeVereau humorously but aptly refers to as trial and error in the first part of his practical polytheism. There are certain things that appease certain gods, and there are certain things that can be applied to problems and situations much like tools. There are certain rituals that performed have tangible results that people can learn from, and so remnants of these rituals are, you know, passed down in practice and in the mythology, but aren't necessarily set in stone or always guarded with the same eye to, um, truthfulness as scriptural doctrine. 
in a results-focused religious system where correct praxis is more fundamental than correct opinion, these rituals become by nature malleable and subject to reform and addition and change as suits the needs of the gods and the individuals practicing. It's important to note here that perhaps the most fundamental difference is indeed the general belief that the gods are known imperfectly and that our knowledge of what pleases them is thus naturally subject to change. As Brett DeVroe further elaborates, quote, The polytheistic system is both devoted to tradition, that is, if it works, keep doing it, and open to change, that is, if it doesn't work, innovate. The system is thus more able to incorporate change without it seeming like anything has changed than many modern religions which have fixed religious texts with strongly accepted meanings, unquote. To put it simply, this is just not a religion with a canon. It is a religion with generations of careful tradition and wisdom and widely accepted cultural understandings for sure, but it's not a religion that is interested in policing a fixed or closed canon where no information can get in or out. In this way of understanding Greek religion as a physical exchange based on imperfect understandings of the gods allows for a greater degree of comfort with variability, change, and contradiction between practices. With that said, of course, no religion is uniquely one thing or another, and anything I say will inevitably end up being an oversimplification. Um, after listening to everything I've just told you about orthopraxy, you might even be inclined to ask me, isn't Christianity also kind of malleable and based on, you know, practical trial and error if we really zoom out the timeline and look at it from space? Or, you know, wouldn't individual Greeks or groups of Greeks not have also policed, you know, correct ways of approaching or thinking about things or held certain authors and authorities of state and religion in high esteem when it comes to interpreting the gods? And, yeah. Yeah, uh, of course. Now, with all of this in mind, I'm going to move on to approaching this from the second direction. That is, examining specific examples of contradictions and weird local traditions in ancient Greece to give you a less theoretical and probably more fun view of what I mean when I say that Greek polytheism has never been a centralized and canonized monolith or has always been open to contradiction. One of my favorites is the absolutely bonkers tradition that claims Achilles married Helen and lives with all of the fallen heroes in Ukraine. <laughs> there is a joke in there somewhere about Ukraine being hell, but I'll let you make that one yourself. Now let me explain what's going on. So, Snake Island is an island in the Black Sea that currently belongs to Ukraine. In antiquity, however, it was known to the Greeks as um, Luke and was sacred to Achilles, so much so that Arian even refers to it as um, Achilleos Nesos, or the Island of Achilles, and that people would experience, like, uh, apparitions of Achilles and Patroclus when they went to go make offerings. So, you know, fun stuff. Fun stuff. Um, essentially, according to some version of the myth that most of us definitely did not learn from the modern classical quote-unquote canon of texts that we are, you know, imposed upon in our curricula, but which we do have preserved for us in Pausanias, Thetis brought the bodies of Achilles and Patroclus to this island, and then Achilles um, marries Helen? Because there's, like, this whole tradition that worships them as, like, a married couple, and then both Ajaxes and Antilochus are, um, also there. 
Yeah, you know, it, that's really it. Um, there's kind of just this whole island out in the Black Sea that's ad- that's really adhering to a completely different version of the mythological events, and people were evidently going to that island and praying to Achilles, and most importantly, they were getting results. This is one of many contradictory localized traditions that is able to develop precisely because there is no real Greek canon and there is no authoritative or original myth. I'll say it one more time. There is no such thing as original myth. So, okay, we've more or less figured out my opinion on the whole matter, and that's that canon is stupid and should never apply to Greek mythology because it is not and never was a feature of actual Greek polytheism. It's just not possible to argue that there is, like, an authoritative text or philosophy or mythological truth out there to hold on to for reference because Greek polytheism is by nature decentralized and practical and ever-changing. You know, in many ways, I think it defies our basic expectations of what religion means. Our Reddit user from all the way at the beginning of this segment in comparing the originality of myth to the Bible should thus be understood as making a deeply, deeply flawed analogy. The worldview of a deeply scriptural, monotheistic, and orthodoxic religion, however entrenched as the default it it is, you know, in our minds, cannot be taken for granted when it comes to examining the ancient past. So, can Mesperian be a real goddess? Um, sure. Do whatever the hell you want. Um, if you want her to exist, she exists now, and you can worship her if you find your own way to. You know, the beauty of Greek polytheism really does lie in its ability to accommodate variability, interpretation, and change. I mean, who's gonna stop you? From my pagan ass to you, um, what the fuck does it matter anyway? Like, why are we so bent on applying such a covertly Christian worldview onto something that works so differently anyway? Doesn't it stand to reason that we should maybe even reevaluate all of our epistemological preconceptions where they've been touched by canon? But I don't want you guys to walk out of this podcast thinking that, oh, John thinks people's actual beliefs are just fanfiction you can abuse like a story, or, you know, oh, John doesn't think facts are real. <laughs> no, that's not it at all. Um, and just to make sure no one takes that away from this episode, I'm gonna make this very clear. Mesperian can be a Greek goddess in a malleable and still evolving tradition without being a historical one. Recognizing the lack of canonical authority and recognizing the power we have as people interacting with an evolving mythology doesn't mean anyone is or should be claiming that Mesperian was worshipped or even known about in the 5th century BCE, for example, that would just be like a very bizarre brand of revisionism. She can be a goddess of now, and still be part of that pantheon, because ultimately we make our myths, and there is no definitive year when the classical tradition really stops changing. But like any other tradition, we just have to remain hyper-aware of the context in which all of this is happening, and apply our best judgment. Anyways, um, that's all for episode 1b of Sermo Vulgaris season 2. Next time you hear from me, which should be immediately because I'm releasing both episodes together, we'll be tackling actually what we just talked about, but from a totally different angle.
Um, joining me in part C will be my good friends Katarina and Dimitri as we tackle complex debates surrounding appropriation, exploitation, cultural ownership, and um, what we can really do with this valuable and yet volatile classical tradition moving forward. In the meantime, you can check us out and watch the previous season of Thermal Vulgaris on our website, thermalvulgaris.squarespace.com. That's thermalvulgaris.squarespace.com, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, and Anchor as Thermal Vulgaris. You can also find us on Twitter at VulgarisThermo because some random band got to Thermal Vulgaris before we did. And, uh, yeah. That's everything. Stay safe, keep learning, and done fuck classics. <laughs>